National Archives podcast series. This talk is called Lawrence of Arabia and Beyond. It was presented by Dr. Juliette Desplat and recorded on the 9th of August 2019 at the National Archives, Kew. Today's talk is presented by my colleague, Juliette Desplat. Uh, Juliette is Head of Modern Overseas Intelligence and Security Records and leads the Overseas and Defence team here at the National Archives. The subject of today's talk is T.E. Lawrence and Juliette will look at some of the lesser-known aspects of Lawrence's war and uh, some of his failures. So, without further ado, I'll hand over to Juliette. Thanks, Stephen, and thank you all very much for coming. When you ask people what they know about Lawrence, they tend to reply, the film with Peter O'Toole. <laughs> and this, this is the popular perception of T. Lawrence, right? Piercing blue eyes, white billowing robes, a camel, a hero. And the 1962 film with Peter O'Toole was heavily romanticised, and notably because Peter O'Toole was six foot two and Lawrence was five foot five. <laughs> and it wasn't the first time that happened. The first film made about Lawrence dates back to 1919, right after the end of the war. An American journalist, Lowell Thomas, spent a few weeks following Lawrence in the desert with a photographer, Harry Chase, and they took a lot of footage which eventually became a real blockbuster show with Alan Bean Palestine and Lawrence in Arabia. And the film was seen by about 4 million people throughout the world and this launched the legend of Lawrence of, of Arabia. It made Lawrence a real household name. Like the 62 film, Thomas's story used a, quite a bit of poetic license. And there's a scene, my favourite scene in, in the film is that scene that shows the capture of a cabin in 1917. And you see Lawrence riding a camel towards the battle and ri a rifle in hand. And then it's all very dramatic. And then suddenly the camel is shot from right under his legs. And it's even more dramatic. But what really happened on this day is that Lawrence shot accidentally the poor camel through the head. <laughs> And it probably doesn't matter that much today, as it probably didn't matter that much then, because Lawrence of Arabia was born. And after the hardships of the war, the, the world had a young hero. I mean, we all love Lawrence of Arabia, right? Well, actually wrong. And his contemporaries, for instance, were not the biggest fans. Another thing people frequently say when I talk about T.E. Lawrence is, ah, do you mean Lawrence of Arabia? And then I tend to roll my eyes, because yeah, I do mean Lawrence of Arabia. But... There is more to Lawrence than just Arabia. That's just the hero bit. And today, what I'd really like to do is go beyond hero worship. So I'm going to leave Arabia, Sandy Dunes and Camels aside. And I'm going to look, as Stephen said, at some of his lesser known activities during the Great War and some of his failures because I'm a bit tired of, of the hero bit. So first, I'd like to um, take you back to 1913, so just before the war. The War Office approached the Palestine Exploration Fund, the PEF, in July. Um, the committee of the PEF entered into discussions with Colonel Headley of the Royal Engineers, the director of the topographical branch and the director of the Ordnance Survey, with a view to getting new maps prepared. And it was agreed that the PEF would provide two archaeologists, while the Royal Engineers would provide officers. And at first, they sought the services of Thomas Eric Peat, the, the fund's chief archaeologist, who declined the offer. 
So the PEF was a bit embarrassed and approached one of its members, Frederick Kenyon of the British Museum. And Kenyon happened to have two archaeologists working on the museum's excavations at Carchemish in Syria, so quite close um, to Palestine, Thomas Edward Lawrence and Charles Leonard Woolley. The, the survey of the Wilderness of Zin, as it became known, uh, was in fact two surveys, one conducted by Stuart Newcomb of the Royal Engineers and one conducted by Lawrence and Woolley. But one couldn't have happened without the other. Both Lawrence and Woolley learned very quickly that the survey was for military purposes, and Lawrence wrote to his mother on the 4th of January, there are a certain number of REs, so Royal, Royal Engineers thereabouts, beginning the survey. We are obviously only meant as red herrings to give an archaeological colour to a political job. The survey lasted four months, um, between January and April 1914. And in June 1914, Lawrence and Woolley, who'd made their way back to Baghdad, started off for a summer holiday in England. And they travelled the whole length of the Baghdad-Damascus railway, gathering information, which was later passed on to Newcomb. And it was Lawrence's first experience of the world of military intelligence. So, of course, he'd been in the right place at the right time. Nothing had predestined him for military intelligence. Lawrence and Woolley were not even the first choice of the PEF, and they had been totally unknown to the war office. And this was obviously about to change. In August 1914, Woolley wrote to the Foreign Office, offering his services and those of his assistant in Syria to Lawrence. I fancy that my name has come before you in connection with North Syria, he wrote. I think that as I know the language, the people and the country, I might perhaps be of some use to the government. The note sent four days later by the Foreign Office to the Army Council really shows that Willie had not exaggerated his own importance. These gentlemen, they wrote, are known to this department to possess a very competent knowledge of Turkey and the Turkish language. Sir Edward Gray, who was Foreign Secretary at the time, <laughs> Sir Edward Gray thinks therefore that the Army Council may be willing to give their favourable consideration to the offer. And they were both given jobs, much to Lawrence's relief because he had been told enough to enlist in the first place. So Lawrence started working with GSGS, General Staff Geographical Section, with Colonel Headley. The, the section was located in what is uh, now the Old War Office building at the corner of Horse Guards Avenue in Whitehall. And section maybe is a bit of a big word because it was really only Lawrence and his supervisor, all the others had been dispatched to France. And Lawrence organised various war theatre maps and he was adding new details as reports arrived from the front. And one of the first things he was asked to do was to produce a report on the Sinai. So obviously, because he'd just done one, he offered the survey of the Wilderness of Zin. But it wasn't deemed to be enough. And he wrote to his friend Leeds on the 16th of November 1914. So I'm writing a report from a military point of view of a country I don't know and haven't visited yet. One of the minor terrors is that later on I'm to get my own book and guide myself over the country with it. It will be a lesson in humility, I hope. <laughs> Lawrence didn't like it much at GSDS. I, I think that he thought, maybe in his rather typical arrogant way, uh, that he could do better than that. And then, well, slightly annoyingly, he was kind of right. It's through his work at GSDS, though, that he became a military man for real. He had joined the section as a civilian, and then he met General Henry Rawlinson. Rawlinson was about to take over the British forces in Belgium, and Lawrence was summoned to brief him on maps. And as he entered the room in his usual civilian clothes, Rawlinson had a bit of a fit and declared that he would only talk to an officer. 
So Lawrence was very quickly made a second lieutenant. <laughs> and here's the jacket of uh, Lawrence's service record held here at the National Archives. And I really like the bit of paper stuck, stuck on the front by a conscientious uh, departmental records officer at the Ministry of Defence in 1983, which said, this file must not be destroyed. It refers to a person of international fame. <laughs> And then finally, finally, at the end of the year, the call came. Lawrence was to travel to Egypt and join the intelligence department there. Lawrence, with Newcomb of the Royal Engineers, reached Cairo on the 14th of December 1914. Once there, he realized very quickly that there wasn't really such a thing as an intelligence department. And on the 24th of December, he wrote to his friend Leeds, you see, this is what we are. There wasn't an intelligence office, and so we set to, and are going to make them one. Today, we got the office, and we all have the intelligence. It's only a simple process of combining the two. In Cairo, Lawrence was mostly bored. He wrote to Leeds in December 14, perhaps someday there will be work to do. And basically, he thought his expertise wasn't used in the best possible way. He had traveled through Syria, through Palestine, Turkey, Egypt. He knew the people, the language, to some extent, um, and the topography of these area. And he thought he could do something more useful than writing geographical reports, making maps, and interviewing the occasional Turkish prisoner of war. So he complained to David Hogarth, his old mentor at Oxford, that while Newcomb was running most offensive spies and Willie was writing windy concealers of truth for the press, I am map officer and write geographical reports tried to persuade them that Syria is not peopled entirely by Turks. By 1915, so very soon after Lawrence arrived in Cairo, it had become quite clear that the British intelligence system wasn't suited to the complexity of Middle Eastern politics and that it had to be streamlined. And if you look at all the different factions gathering intelligence in the Middle East, um, it's rather obvious. General Murray, commanding the British Expeditionary Force on the Suez Front, was in Ismailia. Um, Ian Hamilton, commanding the Mediterranean Expeditionary Force, was in Alexandria. Maxwell, commanding the British Army in Egypt, was in Cairo. Wingate, commanding the Egyptian Army, was in the Sudan. Wimps, commanding the East India Squadron, was in the Red Sea. And then in Mesopotamia, there were agents in Baghdad and in Basra, reporting to the India office. And southwestern Arabia, so around Jeddah and Mecca, fell within the remit of the British resident in Aden, and they were also all reporting to the India office. In Cairo, Clayton was at the head of Murray's intelligence network, but political affairs were administered by the High Commissioner. In Mesopotamia, military control fell under the British commander on the Tigris, Percy Lake, while political affairs were administered by the chief political officer, Percy Cox. And there were two big rival camps, India and Egypt, who were rather unwilling to cooperate. And there were fissures between the military and political authorities in both India and Egypt, so it was all very confusing. And a similar very confusing situation prevailed in London. The Admiralty, the Foreign Office, the War Office, the India Office, they all wanted to be in control of Middle Eastern affairs. And each department had a very deep distrust of the others. And on top of that, administrative boundaries were not well defined at all, especially in Arabia. Boundaries were also blurry in Mesopotamia because military matters fell under Delhi, but within Cairo's sphere of political intelligence. So it was all very complicated. And Mark Sykes, of Sykes-Picot Agreement fame, 
uh, who was never short of a good phrase, described the situation as going from crisis to inertia and from coma to panic, watching assets frittered away and opportunities missed. And this is how emerged the idea of a single entity channeling intelligence reports and information throughout the Middle East, an idea which would become the Arab Bureau. The, the idea was to harmonise British political activity in the region so that all the departments with an interest in the Middle East could be informed all at the same time on matters of intelligence. When it was first discussed, the, the Bureau seemed somewhat doomed. There were so many so many different departments and agencies involved that the whole scheme seemed bound to fail. The War Office, Foreign Office and India Office are slow and the Admiralty has barged in, Sykes complained to Clayton in December 1915. And the first question was obviously who should control such a bureau? The India Office could have done the job, but Sykes, whose idea it was in the first place, was much too suspicious of them. Well, he did insist on the necessity on, of keeping on good terms with the office, but, but then what he really wrote was keeping on good terms with those idiot Sahib Landers who are jealous and provincial, <laughs> which is hardly conducive to cooperation. The Admiralty was considered a good possibility. Um, the Red Sea Patrol had been involved in intelligence activities along the, the coast of the Hejaz, so what is now Saudi Arabia, uh, since 1914. And as Sykes put it, the merit of the Admiralty is that it alone achieves anything, has large funds and does things. <laughs> but the Admiralty had been somewhat discredited by the recent disaster in Gallipoli and Sykes was a bit reluctant. The War Office uh, wanted an official connection with the Bureau and so they dangled as bait the extensive facilities of military intelligence, codes, agents, machinery, etc. But these facilities were definitely not as good as those of the Admiralty, especially on the funding front. So early in January 1916, an interdepartmental conference was uh, held in London, gathering representatives from the India Office, the Foreign Office, the War Office and the Admiralty. And it was decided that in the end, the Arab Bureau would be a branch of Cairo's political and military intelligence network, but would be responsible um, to the residency. So basically, the Foreign Office had ultimate control over the Arab Bureau. The aims of the Bureau were to harmonise British political activity in the region and to coordinate propaganda in favour of Great Britain amongst non-Indian Muslims. And it all looked really good on paper, you know, very sensible, very logical. But in practice, the Arab Bureau had to deal with a very vast territory covered by agents who reported to different entities and had a distinctly anti-empirical approach when on a mission. But in fact, they were not used at all to reporting to anyone and taking orders was probably not their forte. So the Bureau was headed by David Hogarth, Hogarth was the keeper of the Ashmolean Museum in Oxford. He was an archaeologist and a very good linguist. And he was also, as I said a bit earlier, T. Lawrence's mentor in Oxford. And Hogarth gathered an extraordinarily scholarly crowd, which Gertrude Bell would later describe as a brilliant constellation. Among these people, these brilliant people, were T. Lawrence himself. You can see here his medal cards, which don't give you much information. Gertrude Bell, 
Belle had traveled through uh, throughout the region. She had visited Persia, Turkey, Palestine, Syria, Arabia, Mesopotamia. She spoke Arabic, Persian, Turkish, French, German, and Italian. And at the beginning of the war, she volunteered uh, with the Red Cross, and she joined the Bureau in 1916 before being sent to Basra to advise Percy Cox and act as liaison officer with Cairo. Captain Philip Graves was a journalist and a writer, former correspondent of the Times in Constantinople. Cornwallis um, had studied jurisprudence in Arabic at Oxford and then joined the Sudan political service before joining the Egyptian civil service. Uh, Ronald Storrs uh, was the Oriental Secretary in Cairo. He had contacts absolutely everywhere and uh, he was a very witty writer. And I don't know if you've read the, his memoirs, Orientations, it's a really good read, it's well worth it. And then you had other people such as um, Aubrey Herbert, who had a degree in modern history and knew the Ottoman Empire really well. Um, Alfred Guillaume, who ended up um, heading the Department of Near and Middle East at SOAS. Harry Pierre Gordon, who was an archaeologist and journalist. Fielding, who was a barrister. So the Bureau was a rather random collection of brilliant minds. And Lawrence thought that within the Bureau, he could really achieve great things. So this, our bureau, was located in just three rooms in um, the Savoy in Cairo. They, the staff were billeted next door at the Grand Continental. And it worked as a sort of analytical clearinghouse. One of its main tasks was to supply to London, so to the Foreign Office, a weekly report on the general state of affairs for general circulation and supply to the, to the intelligence division secret detail of the whole situation for particular information of those immediately concerned. And this became the Arab Bulletin. The Arab Bulletin was founded on the initiative of Lawrence to provide a, quote, a secret magazine of Middle East politics. So Lawrence edited the first, uh, the first number on the 6th of June 1916, and then he himself sent a lot of reports to the Arab Bulletin, which enabled readers in London, uh, in Cairo and London, to follow the Arab revolt week by week. The Foreign Office described the Arab Bulletin as a remarkable intelligence journal, so strictly secret in its matter that only some 30 copies of its issues were struck off. Nor might the journal be quoted from, even in secret communication. In July 1916, the Arab Bureau established a branch office in Jeddah, so what is now Saudi Arabia, under Colonel uh, Wilson, who'd been a provincial governor in the Sudan. And he and his staff reported on events in the Hejaz. Wilson, more interestingly, also reported to Clayton, Lawrence wants kicking, and kicking hard at that. Then maybe he would improve. At present, I look upon him as a bumptious young ass. <laughs> this incidentally shows that um, there were probably too many factions and personality clashes for, for it to really work properly. I mean, Percy Lake hated Percy Cox and was very much disliked by Gertrude Bell. Lawrence quite possibly despised everyone and was, ra was rather hated by all. It's during his time with the Arab Bureau, though, that Lawrence was sent on a very peculiar mission to Mesopotamia. In April 1916, he was dispatched to Mesopotamia to, if possible, purchase one of the Turkish leaders of the Mesopotamian army, such as Khalil or Negib, so as to facilitate the relief of the siege of Kut and General Tansend. And he could go up to one million pounds. Lawrence proceeded to Basra and then to Kut with Aubrey Herbert. 
And there, they had to negotiate quite hard to secure a meeting with Khalil Pasha, the commander of the Ottoman forces at Kut. And it wasn't that easy to even pass on a message, actually. And Lawrence wrote to his mother, from our front trenches, we waved a white flag vigorously. Then we scrambled out and walked about halfway across the 500 yards of deep meadow grass between our lines and the Turkish trenches. And Khalil Pasha initially refused to see them. And when he finally agreed to a meeting, Lawrence and Herbert had to be escorted to his camp. And Aubrey Herbert described the scene in his diary. We were blindfolded, and we went in a string of hot hands through the trenches, banging against men in corners and sweating something cruel. And it was all for nothing. On the 29th of April, Tansen had to surrender. According to the reports, at 1pm, the garrison wireless tapped goodbye, and then went silent. Following military protocol, Townsend destroyed his guns, which left Lawrence and Herbert very little to negotiate with, apart from the one million pounds ransom. And I don't know if you're aware of it, but we have here at the National Archive a very clever currency converter, which tells us that in today's money, it means 58,992,200 pounds. Also tells us that when Lawrence was sent to Kut, one million pounds could buy you 103,199 cows or 36,363 horses. What you couldn't seem to be able to buy with a million pounds was a Turkish commander. <laughs> so Khalil Pasha declined the offer. He was actually quite offended. Um, he would only agree to an exchange of prisoners and to indulgent surrender terms for Townsend and his little dog, uh, Spot, the little dog was called, I'm told. And Spot and Townsend spent the rest of the war on what was then known as Principio and is now Buyukada. It's one of the, um, the Prince's Island off the coast um, from Istanbul. Lawrence and Herbert also obtained the release of 1,000 wounded in exchange for as many Turks. And then they spent the night in the camp where they were given a most excellent dinner in Turkish style and then headed back. The mission to Kut had been a total failure. For Lawrence, though, the mission was quite formative. It gave him a first-hand glimpse of the Turkish army and its commanders, and he met with everyone who was anyone in Mesopotamia, notably Percy Cox, and that would, that would be very useful to him um, later. So I'm now going to fast forward over the Arab revolt and the road to Damascus and all the legendary episodes to reach the end of the war. After the war... Many, uh, many of Lawrence's friends returned to their normal lives. Gertrude Bell stayed on and, was, and she was instrumental in the creation of Iraq. But David Hogarth went back to the Ishmaelian. Reginald Campbell Thompson went digging in Iraq. And Willie went back to Carchemish on behalf of the British Museum. And you can see um, here, you can see here a letter from Reginald Campbell Thompson to the War Office begging to be released and explaining that his wish was to return as soon as possible to his scientific work in which he has spent his life previous to the war, ancient languages and archaeology of the Near East. But not Lawrence. Lawrence had done his bit during the war and he now turned his attention to peace. Back in 1916, France and Britain, with the endorsement of Italy and Russia, had secretly drawn up an, an agreement carving out the Ottoman Empire, the infamous Sykes-Picot Agreement, with which I'm sure you're familiar. Um, some people still blame Sykes-Picot today for the situation in the Middle East, and they're obviously wrong for many, many different reasons, if only because Sykes-Picot was never implemented. That's probably uh, a different story. 
In London, on the 4th of November 1918, Lawrence addressed the Cabinet Season Committee and put out a brand new, very Sharifian proposal, now known as his Peace Map, uh, which you may have seen before as well. So if you look at the map, Faisal should administer Syria, while Mesopotamia should be split into two areas under Zaid and Abdullah. So they were all sons of Sharif Hussein of Mecca, who was by then king of the Hejaz. The, so this map obviously looks very, very different from the Sykes-Picot agreement. And to be fair, it also looks very different from what happened in the end. The War Office and the Foreign Office were broadly supportive of the proposal, but the India Office was bitterly opposed to it. Hussein Rauf, who led the Ottoman delegation at Mudros when the armistice was uh, negotiated and signed, later wrote in his memoirs, There was a general conviction in our country that England and France were countries faithful not only to their written pacts, but also to their promises, and I had this conviction too. What a shame that we're mistaken in our beliefs and convictions. And I think Lawrence would have agreed. When he learned about the Sykes-Picot agreement, he was very angry. He felt that France and Britain were breaking all the promises that made to the Arabs. And in one of his wartime diaries, for, uh, uh, dated um, June 1917, there's a, a note which he penciled very heavily across a page, and it was addressed to Clayton. And you can, it, it's penciled so heavily that he almost went through the page, and you can almost feel the anger. And the note says, Clayton, I've decided to go off alone to Damascus, hoping to get killed on the way. For all sakes, try and clear up this show before it goes further. We are calling on them to fight for us on a lie, and I can't stand it. So the note was never sent. But this sums up Lawrence's state of mind quite well. The peace conference wasn't a great time for Lawrence. He, he felt that Britain had an obligation to the Arabs in general, and to Faisal in particular, because Faisal had led the Arab revolt. He felt that the Arabs should have a say in the peace negotiations as their own future would be debated. And then he suggested that Faisal should be sent to Paris as he had gained a personal reputation through his splendid victories. And King Hussein, King Hussein of the Hejaz, was initially a bit reluctant, but he finally agreed. And Faisal arrived in Marseille in the south of France on the 26th of November 1918. Lawrence joined him there and together they travelled to Lyon. And so that's kind of south, still southeast of France. The, the French were not too pleased to see Faisal in their country, especially as the British had told them last minute that he was coming. And actually, they had merely informed General Jules Amelin, the commander-in-chief of the French troop in the Levant, uh, who then informed Paris. So they hadn't even been told directly. Once he reached uh, Paris, Faisal was informed that he had no official sta status whatsoever. The French authorities, and especially the Quai d'Orsay, so the French Ministry for Foreign Affairs, were staunchly opposed to Faisal's presence at the, at the conference. And they argued that the participation of new states was subject for discussion of powers and that they hadn't been consulted. And yet, Faisal had been under Allenby's command and therefore a belligerent. Britain insisted and France finally yielded. And Faisal was grudgingly accepted as an official delegate, but only as Hejaz's representative, that's to say his father's representative. 
then only a semi-official hearing could be granted, as, as the French said, uh, Faisal couldn't be considered at speaking in the name of Arab peoples. Funnily enough, Florence also had a rather bizarre status at the conference. He had absolutely no military status, the War Office made it quite clear, but he was part of the British delegation. He was a technical advisor to the British delegation, but he was also Faisal's interpreter and advisor. And he didn't feature on the final list of advisors. This list was provided by the British government when it came to, to producing and distributing commemorative plaques. So he was a bit in and a bit out. And there was a real dichotomy in Lawrence's role in, in Paris. And that's also quite symptomatic of his whole role during the war. In uh, March 1919, Gertrude Bell wrote to her father from Paris that Lawrence's charm, simplicity and sincerity made a deep personal impression and convinced his listeners. Well, his charm certainly didn't impress the British delegation or the French one. President Wilson met with Faisal during the peace conference as early as the 23rd of January. But the Eastern question was not very high on the agenda. So Lawrence spent a lot of time lobbying and then talking to everyone who would, or, or anyone who, would, who could be bothered to listen, pleading the cause of the Arabs, advocating for Arab independence. And that didn't endear him to the British delegation, who realised quite quickly that he would determine, he was determined to hold them to account. And the British delegation was very often offended by his ambiguous position. He turned up wearing a Bedouin kefir, which, which they found insanely irritating. He was very disillusioned with the attitude of Britain, and to be fair, the attitude of France too. And then they thought they were only breaking the great promises they'd made during the war. And he was constantly behind Faisal, and was eventually described by a member of the British delegation as a malign influence. The British were also offended by Lawrence's practical jokes when he notoriously threw toilet paper down, down a stairwell at Lloyd George and Balfour, which didn't go down too well. Um, they weren't particularly amused. And then he went flying over Paris with Faisal and the emir deplored the fact that they didn't have any bombs to throw at the peace conference. And Lawrence said, oh, well, it doesn't matter. We have cushions. And then he started throwing cushions overboard. Faisal addressed the Supreme Council on the 6th of February 1919. And he was wearing white gold robes with a scimitar dangling from his belt, and it was all very, uh, very dramatic. And he cut a very impressive figure. And Lawrence was standing behind him, translating, or next to him, translating in spe his speech from Arabic. And there's a rumour, according to which Faisal was merely reciting the Quran, while Lawrence was actually giving the speech, but <laughs> we'll probably never know. At the peace conference, Lawrence must have thought that nothing much was happening, why Britain and France were still deciding who would get what. And then one day, Arnold Toynbee, who was one of the advisers, delivered a paper to the Prime Minister, and he later wrote, Lloyd George, to my delight, had forgotten my presence and had begun to think aloud. Mesopotamia, mm, yes, oil, irrigation, we must have Mesopotamia. Palestine, mm. The Holy Land, Zionism, we must have Palestine. Syria, mm, what's there in Syria? Let the French have that. <laughs> and now this is very anecdotal, of course, but I think it gives a good idea of the atmosphere of the conference. And then one of the way in which the two imperial powers scrabbled over ter uh, territories in the Middle East. 
and Lawrence ended up leaving the conference before the end. In 1921, Lawrence attended another major conference, this time entirely devoted to the Middle East, the Cairo Conference. It was organised by Churchill, the newly appointed Secretary of State for Colonies, and the purpose of the conference was to consult with authorities in Palestine and Arabia, Mesopotamia and the Gulf, to settle the Eastern question once and for all. In, in other words, to approve the hastily redrawn British plans. And Lawrence accompanied Churchill in his capacity as political advisor to the Middle East Department. He arrived in Alexandria on the 8th of March 1921 and proceeded to Cairo. The conference opened formally on the 12th of March 1921, and during 12 days, in the utmost secrecy, 40 to 50 sessions were held at the Semiramis Hotel in Cairo. And there were, as you can imagine, uh, a lot of committees and subcommittees and sub-subcommittees, and Lawrence attended a lot of them. And his work mainly focused on Mesopotamia and Transjordan. The question of Mesopotamia was very prominent, especially the question of who should govern Mesopotamia. Cox, Percy Cox, the political officer in Mesopotamia, Lawrence and Gertrude Bell worked together to push for Faisal's rule. They were absolutely convinced that he was the best candidate and that he would receive unanimous approval. It may seem a bit strange, as, as Faisal was actually rather unknown in Mesopotamia, but he had acquired some degree of fame during the Arab revolt, that is true, but very few in Mesopotamia had actually joined his troops. And in the Arabs of Mesopotamia were in majority Shia, so they had chosen to ignore the call of the sunny Sharif of Mecca. But still, Lawrence Cox and Bell thought that he, will, he so Faisal, was well disposed towards Britain, and in truth he actually was, um, probably out of gratitude. They even drew up a nice little timetable, very detailed timetable, leading to his election, which is a weird word, as King of Iraq by the National Council. And in the end, the conference decided that political conditions involved the necessity for a Sharifian ruler to be selected from Mesopotamia, and that the most su suitable ruler was the Emir Faisal. So Faisal was proclaimed King of Iraq in August 1921. Lawrence, you probably won't be surprised to hear, also had views on whom should be placed at the head of Transjordan. At first, he was in favour of appointing a governor, a British governor, and he opposed the rule of Abdullah. He feared that the French may approach Abdullah regarding the vacant throne in Syria, and then that Transjordan would then pass under French influence. And then he changed his mind, probably because there was no other suitable candidate. But he thought that neither Abdullah nor Britain was strong enough to hold Transjordan without assistance from the other. So in March, he accompanied Churchill to Jerusalem and then proceeded to Amman to discuss things with Abdullah. And on the 12th of April 1921, back in Cairo, he wrote to his mother, spent eight days in Amman, living with Abdullah in his camp. It was rather like the life in wartime, with hundreds of Bedouin coming and going and general atmosphere of newness in the air. However, the difference was that now everybody is trying to be peaceful. To Lawrence's greatest surprise, Abdullah actually proved to be a very, very good administrator. His branch of the dynasty is actually the only one that managed to survive 
modern turmoil, and his great-grandson, Abdullah II, is still king of Jordan today. Now, in, in Seven Pillars of Wisdom, Lawrence described the conference as follows. It made straight all the tangle, finding solutions fulfilling, I think, our promises in letter and spirit, were humanly possible, without sacrificing any interest of the peoples concerned. So we are quit of the wartime Eastern adventure with clean hands, but three years too late to earn the gratitude which peoples, if not states, can pay. So the major decisions rubber stamped in Cairo sealed the geopolitical map of the modern Middle East, and Lawrence was part of it, but his role hadn't perhaps been as important as he had hoped. So after that, Lawrence was dispatched to the Hejaz to sweet-talk Sharif Hussein, uh, Sharif Hussein of Mecca, king of the Hejaz, into accepting the conclusion of the Cairo Conference. And Britain also wanted the king of Hejaz to ratify the treaties of Versailles and San Remo in return for an Anglo-Hashemite treaty guaranteeing support and funding for his conflict against Ibn Saud, who was contesting his rule in Arabia. So basically, when Sharif Hussein had proclaimed himself king um, of the Hejaz in October 1916, he'd also declared himself Malik Bilad al-Arab, which means king of the Arab lands, which absolutely infuriated Ibn Saud and, and rekindled the religious conflict. They, they had fought quite a lot before the First World War and during even somehow during the war, and, and that all started again. Well, anyway, the mission to the Hejaz didn't go so well. In Jeddah in August 1921, Hussein absolutely refused to sign anything until the British recognised his kinship of a Palestine and Mesopotamia, and priority over all rulers in Arabia. And then he refused to ratify the treaties in protest against the Balfour Declaration. And then he refused to sign anything in protest against the establishment of the British and French mandates in Syria, Iraq and Palestine. And Lawrence wrote to London complaining that the king was raising absurd new ideas every single day. And he wrote, The old man is conceited to a degree, greedy and stupid, but, he added, very friendly. And when you read the correspondence um, held here at the National Archives in the records of the Jeddah Agency, so that's a 686 um, you can really see Lawrence gradually losing patience with Hussein. Two days after this first telegram, he wrote to London, his ambitions are as large as his conceit, and he showed unpleasant jealousy of his sons. And then he added, I gave him my candid opinion of his character and capacity. And then, you know, I really would like to know what he said, because apparently the king and his foreign secretary then burst into tears. <laughs> and Lawrence started to feel that it was almost mission impossible. Hussein was erroneously, convinced that Britain was dependent on him for its prestige, for its prestige in, the, in the Middle East. And on the 7th of August, uh, Lawrence finally lost patience and walked out of a meeting. And as you can imagine, this didn't go down too well with Hussein, who thought that no one could treat royalty so. And Lawrence commented, well, his titles have turned his head and made him complacently absurd. And exactly a month after that, there was a bit of oriental drama when Lawrence answered the demands that Hussein made or, or conveyed through him. Um, Hussein apparently sent for a dagger and swore to abdicate and kill himself. 
and so negotiations reached an absolute deadlock. Lawrence left, King Hussein never ratified the Anglo-Hashemite Treaty, he continued to fight with him Saud, and Lawrence's last war mission was an absolute failure. So I just wanted to show really that Lawrence's experience of the war wasn't limited to the Arab revolt, even though that even though that's how he's most remembered. And you know, looking at these different phases of his war, the geographical section, the intelligence department, the Arab Bureau, peace conference, Cairo conference, mission to the Hejaz, I am myself reminded of the 1962 film in two scenes in particular. First, there's one in which he's having a conversation with Faisal. Now, you're an Englishman, Faisal says. Are you not loyal to England? And Lawrence replies, to England and to other things. And I think this captures quite well the complexity, the sort of duality of Lawrence's attitude during all these episodes. He's a British officer fighting with the Arab army. He's a British technical advisor, but argues for Arab independence rather than for the advancement of the British Empire. In Seven Pillars of Wisdom, he explains quite clearly that in Mesopotamia in 1916, he developed a rather deep antipathy for the imperialist cause and that he believed that British generals often gave way in stupidity what they had gained in ignorance. <laughs> and he was disillusioned. So many great hopes and broken promises. The first blow had been the Sykes-Picot Agreement, of course, the existence of which he had disclosed to Faisal, actually, quite early on. But the immediate aftermath of the war, the, the politics of it all, the, the jingoistic colouring of policies, and then that, for Lawrence, I think, was the last straw. And that's where I'm reminded of the second line of the Peter O'Toole film I wanted to mention, when um, Sharif Ali, the, the rather magnificent Omar Sharif, tells Lawrence, you are angry, English, and angry he certainly was. Thank you very much. This podcast is copyright to the National Archives. All rights reserved. It is available for reuse under the terms of the Open Government Licence.